0: coming up on the scott thompson home show podcast the canadian border is open to americans but the american border is not open to canadians one of ontario's favorite premiers bill davis has passed away at the age of 92 how big of an impact will post covid 19 have on your life with the summer olympics behind us do we really want to go to beijing it's all coming up scott thompson show on 900 chml
1: i'm curtis thompson scott's son you can tell my dad has been on holidays by his access ear and nose hair or perhaps it's just a residue of living in a pandemic shaved and fully clothed it's the scott thompson home show here.
2: scott
0: thompson hey have you ever have you ever had your shirt on doing this come here have you ever done this with a shirt on
3: no
0: have every time all we've been doing this for 73 weeks have you ever had a shirt on you've been you've been naked from the waist up every single time haven't you
3: yep
4: all right
0: <laughs> i know really eh? he's like busting a gut here and uh, yep nope he gives me one word answers what the heck is that uh, all right. Good afternoon. It is. You know, he's left his headphones lying here. Oh, uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is the Scott Thompson home show week number 73. Uh, just back from two weeks holidays. So I'm not sure which way is up. So bear with us as uh, we try to get through this. Uh, and tomorrow. <laughs> i'll try to have kurt fully closed for the intro all right uh but i am just so you know and and i have uh i have uh, addressed the issues that kurt was expressing earlier on because there's, well, I'll leave it at that. All right, uh, as I mentioned, the border has opened uh, to U.S. tourism, Ontario's COVID numbers uh, going up. I mean, it was, it's interesting. I look at uh, two weeks ago when we finished off on Friday, July 23rd, 192 new cases. Uh, today we have 325. So obviously the unvaccinated still a great concern. The variants uh, are still a great concern. And we should also make sure we tell everybody that those Americans that are coming across the border are fully vaccinated two shots and have to show proof of all of that in order to uh to get across to talk more about where we are today let's bring in dr todd coleman biostatistician phd assisted uh, professor department of health sciences at wilford Laurier university and is with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well
1: Yes, I am. Thank you.
0: A couple of questions here, doctor. First off the top, uh, before we get to the U.S. border and such, your thoughts on where we are right now. As I mentioned two weeks ago, sitting at 192 new cases, obviously we're up to 324. Uh, We have huge vaccine rates of 80%, uh, roughly 80% with the first dose that are eligible, 70% with the second dose. Your thoughts on where we are right now, Todd?
1: Uh, if we're looking at the pure case numbers, uh, it's not looking too positive. The trajectory right now is on an upward incline, uh, again. So we're, we're probably looking at a resurgence or at least what most people are saying is the beginning of the fourth wave.
0: So how will this affect us in a vaccinated world? Because obviously the first, the second wave, a lot different than what could be, I guess, some are even calling the fourth. Uh, how how do you anticipate uh, this uh, affecting us, especially when you compare it to past waves, considering the amount of people we do have vaccinated here?
1: Yeah, in terms of the things that we've been looking at, in terms of case numbers, uh, I, I'm not too sure exactly what we're going to see. We might see a large uh, uh, increase like we've seen in previous waves, uh, but that will largely be in the unvaccinated population. Uh, in terms of additional uh, indicators like hospitalizations uh, and, and deaths, uh, we might see some buffering of the trends that we saw in previous waves, Uh, it it really is a a big question mark at this point. All we can do is look at other countries who are in similar situations with similar vaccine rates as ours and see what is happening there, like the UK uh, and other European countries.
0: Uh, we've certainly seen on that point, doctor, we've certainly seen uh, a great uptake by Canadians on this. As I mentioned, the number is sitting at 80 and 70 percent uh, with first and second doses. How do we compare to other countries when it comes to people buying into the vaccination? We certainly know where the U.S. is. I think they're sitting around 50 uh, percent fully vaccinated. Uh, how do we compare? Are there other countries that are doing as well uh, as Canada? How do we compare around the world?
1: Yeah, we are doing uh, very well in terms of the, the vaccination rates. Uh, we are obviously a lot higher than the, the U.S. Uh, in terms of the uptake, uh, where you see a lot of regional variation in numbers, uh, as you do here, but not as much of the, the variation as you see down there. But we're, we're pretty on par with a lot of the European countries in terms of vaccination levels.
0: And so as we look at those countries and monitor those countries as they deal with the variants, again, how do you think we're going to fare through this with a vaccinated population?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. We are seeing, uh, if you contrast a couple of different countries, like the U.S. is seeing really high numbers of hospitalizations and deaths uh, still because of low vaccination rates in certain states. Uh, Whereas you've seen this uh, buffering trend uh, in other countries who have higher vaccination levels where, yes, there are still high numbers of hospitalizations, but not quite the level seen in previous waves where nobody was vaccinated
0: and obviously, as we get towards uh, the end of summer and things are starting to open up and with the fall, uh, arrival of fall, uh, more of us heading indoors, specifically with schools. How concerned are you, um, especially with those that are under 12 that can't be vaccinated at this point?
1: Yeah, there is some slight concern. I've seen some some of the data that we have seen uh, shows that there are children being affected uh, pretty heavily by uh, the Delta variant. Uh, if we look at Florida as an example, there's a high number of, of children who've been hospitalized, um, with, with, uh, uh really severe COVID symptoms. Um, there, there is some concern. My concern lies more in the, in the mixing of the groups, uh, the bringing people together, regardless of what setting, uh, in a, a closed confined area. Um, causes some concern about uh, transmission risk regardless uh, and varying vaccination levels and non-vaccination levels in the under-12s uh, could still potentially be problematic.
0: Uh obviously we've seen uh in this country and in others as a vaccine finally becomes uh, more plentiful that now hesitancy has uh, snuck into the conversation. Uh in re- and there's lots of chatter about passports and and whether vaccines should be made mandatory. Um your thoughts on say healthcare staff, teachers, educational staff, uh should the vaccine be mandatory?
1: Yeah, uh in, in, we already have mandatory vaccines for a number of, of different sectors, uh, non-COVID-related vaccines. So putting this in, especially with something that's, that's circulating that's highly prevalent uh, in these settings, uh, would be a wise thing to do uh, if you're able to do so. So excluding those people who can't get vaccinated for health reasons. Uh, yeah, it, It'd be a wise idea to, to put in uh high mandatory recommendations for vaccines for these groups.
0: With kids under 12 not being able to be vaccinated, is it imperative that their teachers are?
1: I would say so, yes. Uh, If the teachers aren't vaccinated and uh, transmission is happening within uh, younger age groups, uh, they could be putting themselves at risk for COVID infection.
0: Uh, we are seeing uh obviously and this was all predicted that towards the end of the summer as as things opened up we would start to see uh, numbers increase uh british columbia in uh in in quite a situation uh over the weekend their their cases have gone up over 400 a day which is even over what what ontario has and obviously mm-hmm. ontario a much larger province how do you explain uh Van, you know bc which is has really been a poster child for how to handle this or or, or many people have? have been heaping praises to Dr. Bonnie Henry about this. How do you explain that, you know, they've got cases now that are higher than, than those in Ontario?
1: Yeah, there's a number of different uh, uh, explanations for it. Obviously, loosening of restrictions. Every time I see a case number going up, I always just fall back on there. It just means that people are intermingling more often. Uh, and then plus you add on top of that uh, a, a variant uh, that is more transmissible than what we've seen before circulating in Canada. And it, and it makes it makes complete sense that this is going to be something that's going that would happen in somewhere like B.C. and like a number of other provinces as well.
0: So is this just something we can expect uh, as vaccinations increase and more things open up?
1: I would say so, yes. Uh, we're, we're likely going to see, just based on the fact that more people are getting together, uh, restrictions are easing, uh, and we have a variant that is more transmissible, uh, and not enough people uh, who are fully vaccinated, uh, we'll, we'll see numbers going up for, for the next little bit. Uh,
0: all right. Obviously, as of twelve oh one this morning, uh the Canadian border open to U.S. citizens. Your thoughts there, as we are where we are, and they must be fully vaccinated. We might, we should also put that in there,
1: right? Yeah, that that for for some of those things, uh, I, I'm a little less concerned. There seems to be a number of high requirements uh, from the federal government for people to be able to come over. Um, There is still some concern because uh, as we've heard for the last year and a half, this isn't something that's always transmitted symptomatically. So there is asymptomatic transmission that could happen. Uh, But the the combination of testing and fully vaccinated, uh, again, it eases the concern that this might be something that uh, results in a high number of infections here in Canada. But at the same time, Uh, My concern lies in the sheer numbers that seem to be going up in the U.S. with uh, really, really high uh, increases across almost all 50 states. Doctor,
0: are you surprised that uh, we are opening up uh, the Canadian border to Americans coming here, albeit fully vaccinated, and they're not opening up their border to Canadians, uh, even though we're doing much better in all of this now?
1: Yes, that does seem quite confusing, doesn't it? Uh, I, I do find it very uh, uh, odd that uh, if you take just the, the, the prevalence numbers, the number of people and the proportion of people who are uh, have COVID, uh, we're, we're, we're a lot lower risk in terms of us to them than them to us.
0: Uh, do you anticipate their border? Uh, obviously, I'm asking you a question you can't answer, but uh, <laughs> is, is, there, is there a scientific or does there appear to be a scientific reason for this or does this appear to be more political? Maybe that's more. Uh, fair.
1: That, that, uh, I, I, I don't really have an opinion on that one because I'm not too sure. It sort of uh, baffles me to, to see why they would not allow uh, a pretty relatively low prevalence uh country uh not allowed to come in
0: uh obviously as i mentioned at the beginning of this uh about 80 percent with the first dose these are eligible so that would be 12 plus 70 percent mm-hmm. with the second dose how much higher do you think we can go with this how much how how far can do you think what do you think the final tally will be and and when will that peak would that be september october november december
1: yeah that, that's one of the the other sort of large question marks that we have because we've seen these numbers with with vaccination rates and herd immunity floating around that it it was on the low end 60 to 70 percent would be okay Uh, and then uh, we have experts saying now that we should be looking at closer to 90 percent that's sort of where uh, my understanding and and what i've seen in terms of the understanding about transmissibility uh, of the, especially the Delta variant, in comparison with other infectious diseases like measles and chickenpox. Uh, my my preference would be to have a vaccination rate, at least somewhere around the ninety percent mark, uh, to sort of match the the values that we see in transmissibility for these other infectious diseases. But again, it's a large question mark. Um, We really just want to make sure that we maximize the number of people who are vaccinated to prevent uh, especially all of the, the, the number of outcomes that could happen as a result of COVID infection, not just transmission in the first place
0: uh i visited my mother at uh, a long-term care facility uh and had to show my uh proof of vaccination that i'd been fully vaccinated twice which i had on my phone that i'd taken a picture of the paper from the pharmacy and such is that enough or do we need some sort of passport from the government
1: yeah that's that's another uh big question mark i think uh having it coordinated uh at the Ontario level because we're seeing a number of individual places like long-term care facilities and other places that require proof of vaccination. uh, I I think having government oversight would probably be a little bit more efficient uh, in terms of, of being able to have a really comprehensive sort of system that covers everybody instead of uh, allowing, uh, just individuals to, to have to rely on receipts and, and those little pieces of paper we got as proof of vaccination that we don't tend to carry around with us. Some people probably have lost them already. Uh, I don't know. So- if you've
0: lost that though, wouldn't you lose the card? Like to me, it was just showing that code on my phone yeah. and blammo, you're good to go. I don't see how it gets any simpler than that. And would this be something that would be, it would have to be done federally then across all the provinces. Otherwise you're going to have a patchwork of systems across uh, the country. No.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, another good question. Or another good point uh, is that if we're going to have one for each province, uh, how comparable are they going to be across yeah. each system? It's similar to the way that the the healthcare system is delivered in the first place. Where each province and territory is left to their own devices, um, the federal government usually just provides uh, the the money for this. Um, so it, it's a having a blanket system, having the same rules apply to everybody would be great. Um, But I'm seeing sort of a a little bit of a game of chicken about who's going to do it first.
0: Hmm. Dr. Todd Coleman with his biostatistician, PhD assistant professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, Scott.
0: All right, as uh, we've been talking uh, all morning and all uh, early afternoon, uh, the United, or the border, the Canadian border for those from the United States is open as of uh, 12.01 this morning, and as long as uh, those Americans are fully vaccinated and test negative, they are uh, free to come in, which is great news for the border cities who have been uh, closed for, my goodness, longer than we can even remember, and who depend on this cross- border traffic in order to stay afloat let's bring in jim diodati mayor of niagara falls and with us now jim thanks for the time hope you're well i'm doing
2: well scott good to hear from you
0: how significant is this day for you jim
2: well it's huge i mean niagara falls and many tourist communities especially along the border have been devastated by the closure of the border and the shuttering of tourism and today is the first time in a year and a half that the average american as long as they're fully vaccinated and come back with a negative test as you say can now cross the border back into Canada. And to put it into perspective, Niagara Falls is the number one leisure destination in Canada. We get 14 million people a year, and typically 25% come from the U.S., and they represent 50% of the revenue. So it's very significant, and we're grateful that we've come up with a safe way to reopen the border.
0: Are you surprised this hasn't been reciprocated, Jim, that, uh, you know, especially, you know, months ago, they were talking about how they were working together on this. And then it seemed that, boom, we get this announcement that Canada was going to let Americans in, but Americans weren't going to let Canadians in, especially considering our vaccination rates. Are you surprised that the two aren't in sync on this?
2: Yeah, we're really surprised and really disappointed. And I'm in regular contact with a number of senators and congressmen and border city mayors in the U.S., and they're all caught off guard and the only explanation that was suggested to me was perhaps because the u.s does have two borders that they wanted to make sure that they were aligned with the southern border as well but here we had senate majority leader chuck schumer threatening our ambassador to open up unilaterally without us if we didn't have a plan and here we are open and we're waiting to hear from them on when they're going to open to canadians and and the frustrating part is we can fly across the border all day long But we can't drive across the border. So, yeah, we're all scratching our heads wondering what's going on. And you bring
0: up a valid point, Jim. It wasn't that long ago that they were all threatening to open up the border, whether we were ready or not. So you have to wonder what's changed there.
2: Well, and that's just it. We, we, and we know it's not any more dangerous to cross at a land crossing than it is at an airport. And, and Canada's done an outstanding job, even better than the U.S. in terms of vaccinating and lower rates for COVID. So we don't see Canada as any kind of a threat to them, but it's going to be a boon for us because Americans will be allowed to come here if they're fully vaccinated to spend their leisure dollars. And Ontarians and the rest of Canada will keep their money in Canada as well. So as long as it's going to be like this, we'll have a little bit of an advantage.
0: Uh, Obviously, it seems, you know, uh, many are pointing to the economic value of this, but also talk about the family reunification and how this has affected people personally uh, in a border town.
2: Well, uh, Scott, that's really important. And what a lot of people don't understand is when you grow up in a border town like Niagara Falls, like Windsor, You know, there's family on both sides of the border, friends on both sides of the border, and a lot of grandparents haven't seen their grandkids in a year and a half, two years. People have missed funerals, they've missed christenings, they've missed weddings, and it's been very hard mentally on families emotionally being separated. So that's the first thing, the reunification of families, which is so important. The second big thing is people being able to visit their properties. A lot of people own property on both sides of the border. As a matter of fact, in Niagara, along Lake Erie, 43 percent of the coastal properties are still owned by americans and last year we had two very devastating storms that did cause havoc on a lot of the properties and now the americans will get to visit their property once again and take an inventory and get things fixed and and figure out where they're at so so yeah in terms of reunification of people and families and visiting your properties it's really really important do you think
0: that opening uh, or allowing Americans to come to Canada fully vaccinated will be an incentive for them to get vaccinated? Or do you think those people who are crossing the border have already, are already there anyway?
2: No, I think it will be an incentive. You know, and it's funny because after 9-11, see, I go back to a time when I was a kid. I grew up in Niagara Falls where we saw crossing the borders, just going into another part of town. Nobody yeah. carried ID. It was just something we did if you wanted to go shopping, grab a bite, deep, go visit some friends and family well, times have changed since 9-11, you need a passport. Well, now you need proof of vaccination. And when they first opened up the border after 9-11 and they said, you now have to have a passport, only 5% of Americans had passports. Today, that number is 50 to 60%. So similarly, there will be an incentive for Americans to get vaccinated. I think it'll definitely help with the hesitancy approach that they've had to deal with there. So I think it'll be a good thing to incentivize them.
0: You brought up uh, passports, Jim. What about vaccine passports? Is this needed or do we you know, I tried just told the story about going in to see my mother at long-term care and I, you know, I showed them a picture of my code and and the the piece of paper that I was I received at the pharmacy when I got my my vaccine and, su- and such. Is that enough or do we need a vaccine passport and is that a provincial thing where it would be a patchwork with everyone else different or is something that's common right across the country?
2: Well, I think it's got to be common, and it's the federal program they have right now, the Arrive Can app, which is very intuitive. And it's not difficult to use. So you download the app and then you upload your two vaccines, which will show what vaccine you received and when. They'll upload your passport information and your health card information. So that seems to me to be the real effective and consistent approach. And Americans can upload it just as easy. It makes it easier for our CBSA border guards to make sure that you've been vaccinated, that you're safe to travel. So I think the system's working quite well right now.
0: Uh, Any increase in traffic? I mean, can we expect that on a Monday? Uh, When will you know? uh, Do you think this to be a a gentle trickle, or do you think they'll be banging down the doors?
2: Well, that's really what we're really curious to see. So we know families and people wanting to see their property will be first and foremost. I think for day trippers, now, we live within a day's drive of half the population of North America, and typically it's the rubber tire market. The people that jump in their car and say, come on, kids, let's go, and they travel. Well, now there's going to be a little more pre-planning involved. So I think in a way, it's it's going to change. It's going to pivot a little. I don't think it's going to be a mad rush today. It's definitely been busier, but not crazy busy. But I think a lot of people are today realizing what they need to do, and they're going to download the app, they're going to upload all the information, and they're going to plan their trip. So we think it'll be more of a dimmer switch approach to the border. It'll get back up to speed, but it won't be overnight.
0: Uh, what is the biggest challenge for places like Niagara Falls? Although Niagara Falls is pretty much an anomaly because, you know, the tourist attraction that it is. So let's stick with Niagara Falls. What's the big challenge for, for Niagara Falls moving forward as, these, uh, as the border is now open?
2: Well, it's nice to see everything open again our casinos are very busy and what people need to understand is we're not going to take anything for granted. We've implemented a couple of great programs here. One is safe to play.ca and safe to stay.ca where we've gone above and bu- uh, beyond provincial protocols. We've brought in epidemiologists so that we've got a good set of protocols to make sure that people know when you come to Niagara Falls, it's safe for you and it's safe for us. We want you to just leave with good memories and good experiences. We don't want there to be any issues with COVID. And our numbers have been very, very low in terms of COVID cases. Our vaccination rates are very, very high. So we're trending in the right direction. We're doing a very, very good job. And Niagara Falls is going to make sure that when you come here, we're going to have a lot of things in place to make sure that we maintain our distance and we maintain our safety.
0: If you're in Niagara, last question here, Jim, then I'll let yeah. you go. If you're in Niagara Falls uh, this past week, how does it compare to other weeks prior to the pandemic? Is it coming back? Are you, are you, where are you as far as where tourism is right now?
2: Well, and that's a great question. The irony is I'm actually currently with the Minister of Tourism right now, Lisa McLeod, and we were just talking about this. And I said the civic holiday August 1st weekend was as busy a weekend as we've had in several years pre-pandemic. So it's taken time. It's been gradual, but it's definitely coming back. So I can see it. And this past weekend was really good. As long as Mother Nature takes good care of us, I think we're going to be in a great place. It's going to come back. We always say uh, uh, resilience is part of our DNA. It's just not overnight. It's gradual, but it's definitely coming back. So we've got the red carpets opened up for all of our guests. We can't wait to welcome everyone back to Niagara Falls. Just remember to bring your mask and we'll have a lot of sanitizer waiting for you.
0: All right, check out Niagara Falls, uh, open now to Americans as well. Mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati, has been with us. Jim, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward.
2: Hey, thanks, Scott. We'll see you in Niagara Falls. Uh,
0: Obviously, uh, Jim Diodati and and other mayors along border towns, uh, very optimistic and happy as a result of that. And I'm assuming, too, as is the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Let's bring in Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good. Good afternoon. How significant is this day for independent businesses? It's a pretty big one.
5: Uh, look, there are tons of businesses that really do depend on tourism and tourism dollars. They have been without tourism dollars from from foreign guests for for kind of ever uh, over the last uh, year year and a half, and and so getting fully vaccinated uh, Americans and soon other foreigners into Canada. Uh, is certainly good news welcome news for many that are dependent on them now the question the big question is have we have we really missed out though on the tourism season effectively many people don't make spur-of-the-moment decisions especially when they have all the additional paperwork and and testing that that needs to come to Mm -hmm. canada but there are some diehards that will be coming up and that's that's welcome
0: are you surprised that this isn't reciprocated with the United States, especially, you know, c- considering the narrative of the past year and a half and how these the story has gone up and down? Are you surprised with us uh, more fully vaccinated than them that they're not reciprocating? And is this an advantage for us? They can come here, but we can't go there and spend money.
5: You know, the U.S. border rules remain even more bizarre than our own. Uh, you know, through the, through the entire pandemic, a Canadian has been able to fly to the U.S. with really without really any restriction, uh, and then return to Canada. But to drive across the border has remained prohibited and, and continues to this day. That makes no sense at all. Our vaccination rates are higher than the U.S. Uh, COVID is spreading at a far lower rate uh, here than than in the U.S. at this stage of the pandemic. Uh, so why on earth they would do that, I don't know. That does have implications, of course, for Canadian businesses. There are many that send uh, workers there. And yes, there are exemptions for essential workers to, to be able to drive from Canada into the U.S., but many, many people just going for a simple business meeting or a plant tour, they're not able to do it right now, uh, and, and that is biting some Canadian businesses right now. So getting the border o- open in both directions is pretty darn important. There is a side benefit, though, and I've heard this from a few tourism operators, that because Canadians are not able to travel easily to the U.S. across the land border, uh, more of them are staying and spending their dollars mm-hmm. in Canada, and that has meant a bit of a blip, especially in rural parts of Canada, uh, for some of the tourism industries that have been hit hard. So, so Canadians are trapped, and we can have uh, U.S. citizens come to Canada, fully vaccinated ones. Uh, so hopefully the, the two things combined will mean some, some better outcomes for tourism businesses that have just been hit so incredibly hard.
0: You have to wonder how the counterparts on the U.S. side of that border is feeling about this, considering all their citizens can come over here and spend money, but, you know, it it doesn't work the other way. You wonder, it must be only a matter of time before uh, this is cleared up uh, in some way. Uh, Do you think that uh, as a result of this pandemic, how... How What is going to be the challenge for independent business moving forward? How has this changed? Many have talked about uh, the pivoting that had to be done uh, will stick. How is this going to change things moving forward?
5: Uh, it remains to be seen. But look, uh, at this stage in the pandemic, I know there are some, certainly some politicians that think that, you know, things are back to normal and the economy is back, uh, back full steam. There is some evidence of that, too, with some of the global numbers in Canada on, on GDP growth, and, and uh, et cetera. i got to tell you, though, that that's not the experience of many, many small and medium-sized companies. Our most recent data shows that only 35% of small businesses at this stage, we're, what, 16 months in, only 35%, just over a third, are at regular levels of business income. That means that two-thirds of Canadian businesses are underwater right now, that they're not making enough, in most cases not enough even to break even. And that leaves so many of them vulnerable to to, to bankruptcy. I, I We do predict at CFIB that, that even as the economy opens, many businesses now will begin to close their doors as they realize that there isn't a pathway back to profitability. And and part of that is, as you've suggested, some consumer trends that have really taken hold and may not slip back the way they were, uh, working from home means that uh, many people that are in downtown cores, uh, many businesses in downtown cores may not be seeing office workers back anytime soon or in, lar- in the same numbers that they did pre-pandemic. Uh, many Canadians are now shopping online. When you have older Canadians now buying stuff on Amazon, uh, that takes away some of the purchases that might have been made in the local, small, independent businesses. So those things can bite hard. But we do know that Canadians love independent businesses in their communities and we're urging all of them to support their local independence if they do that in large numbers we will see more businesses make it uh, and the jobs and economic contributions they make maintained
0: it certainly has put a, a focus on independent business. The pandemic that is, and, and hopefully that will continue. Uh, we do a, a feature on the show at the end of the show on every day where we spend like ten minutes just talking to a Hamilton business that has been hit by this, and we've been doing it, as you said, for like sixteen months now. And it it's amazed me, Dan, how many new businesses have opened up during the pandemic. Now I'm sure a lot of that is because they've lost, you know, a previous job or what have you, uh, and they've had to pivot just out of necessity. But I was surprised at how many have started during the pandemic.
5: You know, you raise a really good point, and and research shows that businesses that are born in times of adversity, uh, those that that kind of, uh, you know, that were just starting as COVID began or started up after the pandemic uh, was in full swing, those businesses may have, in fact, a better chance of survival, because if you can make it during these lean, lean times with lockdowns and and all the other restrictions that have been in place, uh, then then. Then perhaps you got something, and and you may be able to uh, to operate a lot better in normal economic times. But look, you know, with every door that closes, there are new opportunities that open up. But I I'm still left with the messages that we get: veteran business owners in tears as they see their businesses just collapsing. Mm-hmm. The average small businesses inherited $160,000 in COVID-related debt over the course of the pandemic. And I worry that that's going to drag many of them under, even as they are reunited with their employees and their customers. So we're not out of the woods yet. Yes, there are some, some, uh, some gems out there that are that are doing well. Uh, some businesses that have started up with brand new business models, and we congratulate them. Uh, but there's a lot of pain left to be experienced by, by so many small businesses uh, across the province.
0: Dan Kelly with us, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on, of course, the U.S. border reopening or the Canadian border reopening to U.S. uh, citizens and just the general uh, fatigue that businesses are feeling as a result of this global pandemic. Dan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Enough of the guests. Time for commentary. The 18th premier of Ontario, Bill Davis, passed away over the weekend at age 92. The Conservative Premier was one of the country's longest-serving leaders when he stepped down at the height of his popularity and effectively ending his party's unprecedented 42-year governance of the province. Davis was Ontario's Premier from 1971 to 1985. Many have said Bill Davis was the last great Conservative leader in Ontario and perhaps the country and certainly the last of any party to govern from the center rather than appeasing the extremes every party has, although during the pandemic it appears the current provincial government has attempted to do so. Something greatly missed in the land of the alt-left or the alt-right we now live in, where the social media vocal minority has abused the conversation and stalled progress by seeking to create divisiveness rather than unite a Canada where healthy debate, compromise, and agreeing to disagree have become all but obsolete. Where are the future Bill Davises? I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
6: I am, Scott. Hope you are, too.
0: Yeah, Michael, you know, whenever we talk politics, you know, I, I often uh, will go back to the Paul, uh, sorry, Bill Davis era and, and talk about just the civility that was in politics back then. It, it's amazing how politicians or leaders on both sides or all sides of the political spectrum are speaking so highly about Bill Davis today.
6: Well, they're speaking highly of Bill Davis, yes, because as you said, he said he came from a different era of politics where it was, uh, we were more akin to agree to disagree, discuss things in a civil manner, move forward one way or the other. Still had, obviously, our our, our the things that we believed in and the things that we opposed, and we still vigorously attack one another, but it was done in a very different fashion. Canada's not unique that way. The United States was also like that, and other parts of the world as well. Politics has just, unfortunately, become more ideologically rigid, and... I'm not saying that anybody who's participated in politics is perfect in that sense. I certainly am not as well. Um, I I recognize that it did come, you know, that Bill Davis was premier at a very different period of time. But again, part of the reason that there's been a lot of people and a lot of political leaders speaking out heavily in favor of Bill Davis is not just because he governed at a different period of time. It's also about the person that he was. He was just I met him a few times. He was a. Very nice man, very intelligent, you know, very much a, a humanitarian, definitely a very humble individual. He was not the typical type of politician that you might see today or even saw during his period of time as well. Very down to earth. Um, but he obviously had his ideas, his own political agenda, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and policies and different issues that he wanted to get through And he governed accordingly. But he was not the same as the prototype or the typical politician you see today in 2021. And for that reason, I think if people are looking for a politics of of a different period of time and one that we're unlikely to return to in all fairness, uh, Bill Davis would be a model for that
0: um i you and i have had the discussion on on the the conservative party uh at length in regard to you know it being my my opinion it's become you know my grandfather's conservative party we didn't say that about bill davis bill davis you know when you listen to trudeau saying build back better this is a man that would build back and literally there's there's legacy there to see um where is that where is that spirit where is that um where is that conservative image of the bill davis era why is it now one of extremism one that the liberals paint the narrative it's about abortion it's about uh climate change (laughs) as Mm -hmm. if there's no opinion on any of these and these are all issues that are uh the, the conservatives have a have a backwards uh have a backwards feeling on
6: well, again, that's personal interpretation There's some people would say that they're the way the conservatives look at issues is valid. But again, that's that's the way a democracy operates. You're not going to obviously agree. You can agree to disagree, as we were talking about in the first question uh, on different issues. And that's OK. There's nothing wrong with it.
0: Look, but where I are the saying, future Bill Davises, Michael? I guess that's what I'm asking. Where are those vibrant conservative leaders that are young that are going to take this party and and give the liberals and the NDP a run for their money?
6: There are lots of people who are up and coming who will obviously enter politics. Some of them will lead parties, some will not, but they'll obviously add to or enrich the political spectrum itself. But in reality, when you when you and you're not the only one who's done so, many others have talked about either not necessarily bill davis but red toryism or different shades of conservatism that exist in canada and beyond a lot of people have asked you know is there a way to call back or bring someone like say the next bill davis or the next john robarts if you want to use another ontario premier of a red tory hue or something of that nature why can we not bring them forth why you know who will these people be can anyone emulate them Again, and I've said this to you before, and i said it to others, too, and I don't mind repeating it, um, you can't assume that what happened in the past is going to be replicated or duplicated in the present. Conservatism has, not, has changed. Liberalism has changed. Socialism has changed. Political ideologies and the political spectrum by nature have changed a lot over the past few decades. And this is not a pendulum sh- shift. There is no history of that. What basically happened is that Many of the ideologies have evolved in different ways, some good, some bad. As you mentioned, you know, you know, there's a lot of extremism on both the, the right and the left, of the political spectrum. And they it pops its, or rears its ugly head on a pretty frequent basis. But to assume that people are going to bring back the second coming of a Bill Davis, there is no second coming in politics. They used to say that of Ronald Reagan as well from the U.S. presidency. There's still some Republicans who believe that. I would love to see the second coming of Ronald Reagan, but there will never be another Ronald
0: Reagan. I don't know. I don't think that's what we're saying at all, Michael. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to go back to the Reagan years of the 1970s or, you know, reincarnate Bill Davis. I think what they're looking for is some of the characteristics that he's being praised for today to be seen in today's politicians. It's not a case about, you know, bringing him back and and bringing back the good old days. You know, is unity the good old days? Is unity out of style is divisiveness the future i mean again it's it's not about what your political view is it's it's about uniting people and and making friends as opposed to enemies
6: well, unfortunately, pining for different periods of time is, is, is a nice pastime that a lot of I don't enjoy. think it's pining but for it, a different period
0: in time.
6: But, Scott, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. You have to live in the now, not the then, and you have to deal with the system as it exists, not the system that you necessarily want it to be or that you look in the past and say, my God, that was so much better. No, Michael, they with all due to-
0: respect, you're making me sound archaic here, and I'm not looking to bring back a period in time. What I'm looking to bring back is civility, is the center, is agreeing to disagree and moving forward because we're going backwards the way it feels right now. So, again, you know, I'm not looking back, you know, I'm I'm not looking for happy days here. I'm not looking for American graffiti. Uh, I'm looking for some some common decency and character in which someone tries to unite a country as opposed to dividing them Uh, you know my point what are your thoughts i mean is can we not actually ever hope to have a uniting leader again
6: well it's not that we can hope to have a uniting leader there will always be leaders that will unite different factions i think unfortunately the way politics has evolved as of late and You know, it's not just weeks, days, months. It's been years and decades that it's happened. Unfortunately, you have to sort of exist in the system as it currently stands. And with that, you know, the problem is that we're also dealing with outside forces as well. I mean, look at what's just happened in the last couple of years with, you know, different radical left and radical right groups, you know, marching out, protesting, causing damage, and otherwise, you know, you can use... Black Lives Matter on one sense or you can use the storming of the US Capitol in the other sense. There's just unfortunate or you know, we can even throw in Charlottesville, Virginia if you want. There's a whole bunch of bad things that have happened over the past few years. And unfortunately, it also becomes systematic to our political process. Mm. I'm not suggesting that the way politics currently stands right now, Scott, is endearing or the best model to have. By far, no, and I've actually criticized it in the past. But in the same sense, and I think it's going to be very difficult for a political leader, whether it be a prime minister in this country or a premier or even a mayor or otherwise, it's going to be hard to be a unifying factor or a unifying force when everybody around you, including the electorate that you have to attract, is just not thinking on that level or acting on that level. Most people are good and decent by nature. You and I both know that. Most of your listeners know that. But unfortunately... People are just not willing to discuss things like they used to. They're not willing to sort of hear the other side, talk about things intelligently, agree to disagree, you know, realize that politics is a bit of theater and a bit of reality and try to sort of go in the middle of that and enjoy yourself as best you can without getting so worked up about everything. But, you know, when we have issues like people getting triggered or calling them snowflakes or whatever you want to use, unfortunately, that is the society we currently have right now And sadly, because of it, it becomes emblematic that the political system that we currently have right now follows through as well. It's not right, it's not good, but it's what exists currently today, and it's what we have to deal with. And to hope that it's all going to suddenly change and that there will be a nature of civility. There are lots of civil people, there are lots of civil politicians, there are lots of civil political leaders, thank goodness. But to hope that it's going to be all the same way it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, I think that a lot of people are just sort of dreaming at this stage and that's unfortunate, but I think that's
0: reality. So this passing and the honoring of Bill Davis won't make people pause any more than a day or so and then move on with business?
6: I think so. Should it? No, but I I think so. But obviously... We should honour the man, that being Bill Davis, for what he accomplished. You know, his type of conservatism was certainly not my type of conservatism, and a lot of other modern conservatives would say the same thing. But through it all, Bill Davis had his own ideas. He wasn't very ideological. He He wasn't an ideologue the way, well, say that I am or others are. But he was willing to work with others. He was willing to get things done. You know, he created a lot of programs, you know, as a minister of education. He created OISE, TV Ontario, and other things. And as Ontario premier, he worked with both, you know, federal progressive conservative and federal liberal leaders to get things done, including his support of, you know, the the criminal code, you know, and working hand-in-hand with Liberal Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau during the charter negotiations. He did a lot of important things. But he remained an ally to the Canadian Conservative movement. He supported the merger of the federal PCs and the Canadian Alliance in 2003. He stumped and worked with and was an advisor to Stephen Harper during his period of time. People may not believe that, but he was really aligned with him. He endorsed the late finance minister, Jim Flaherty, and he endorsed other conservatives, including John Tory for mayor of Toronto, and more recently, Patrick Brown is mayor of Brampton, you know, his hometown where he spent his final days. Mm. So I think that's a model that certainly a lot of political leaders can use, whether they're on the right side of the political spectrum or the left side of this political spectrum. And if that's something we can give pause to think about and start to reengage in that fashion, I think that's a victory in itself.
0: Well said. All right. I can't let you go without jumping to the federal side for uh, just a second here. Uh, th- uh, in regard to the next election, whenever that is, it certainly seems like we're on uh, the cusp of that announcement. Uh, yeah. And Adam Vaughn announced announcing he's stepping away, uh, among, uh, as well as two other liberals today. Your thoughts on that and, and this positioning?
6: Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are suspecting things. You know, everyone says that maybe... Maybe the, the, the writ's not going to draw to the federal election for an extended period of time. Some people, of course, and this sort of goes back to what we were talking about with politics, are throwing out ideas that, oh, no, no, they're just, you know, they're going to sort of time the election that, to ensure that these people earn their pensions and all that. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a lot of the gossip and tripe that usually comes out during this period of time. But no matter what, When you see something like this happen, especially three Liberal MPs announcing they're not running on the same day, it's very interesting. It it doesn't mean you can necessarily explain what's about to happen, because you're going to need candidates very quickly, and they're going to have to be parachuted into these ridings, especially if a federal election is called in the next little while, which we assume it will. But it does mean that there's going to be some rapid turnover in the Liberal Party. Clearly, they have some candidates in mind that they want to put in. Some of these people who step down, like, for example, Adam Vaughn has said that he's, he believes he's accomplished as much as he can. And he's turned 60, wants to go back home and spend time with his family. That could be the case. You know, uh, uh, the other two, one of them was actually Will Amos, the, who people may remember as the yeah. Quebec MP, who exposed himself a couple of times on Zoom yeah. during House of Commons proceedings. You and I talked about that as well. So he's obviously stepped back. I don't know. I, we're, you know, it's interesting. It's fascinating to see. It's, it's kind of unusual to hear three of them do it all at once within a few hours of each other. But it obviously means that we are getting much closer to a federal election. And there's going to be new faces in the Liberal Party. I think that's for sure.
0: Isn't, a li- isn't it a little late for this, considering there is such a short period of time? Although we know the, the election certainly has not been called, but we know what no. the window is. Is this too late?
6: It's not that it's late. It's been done extremely late. You can, you can rush through a riding nomination very, very fast. There's certainly ways to do it. And trust me, if the Liberals parachute candidates in, like they did years ago with Judy Scrowe, for example, you just throw the person in, you ensure that you've got the whole riding executive behind it. If you don't, you get rid of parts of them or elements of them as quickly as you can. Just blast it through, and you've got a candidate. It can be done very, very fast. And anyone who's ever worked in politics knows that it's not hard to do. Um, but you're right that it's being done in a very weird period of time. You would have thought that the three MPs, if they sort of knew that they were going to leave, would have announced it much earlier. But again, I think there's still probably a little bit more to this story that we probably don't know. And I guess we're going to find out in the next few days
4: what it is.
0: Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist Contributor to the Washington Times And former speechwriter for Stephen Harper Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time Be well You too, and good luck with the microphone <laughs> Thank you <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, There's a fascinating article on our Global News website uh, by Ann uh, Gaviola, and it's entitled, Does a five-day work week adopted in the 20th century make sense now? And I just want to read you the first couple of uh, lines of this. Uh, In 1926, Henry Ford, the man at the helm of the Ford Motor Company, shut down his seven-day automotive factories for two days a week, giving rise to the foundation of the five-day work week in North America. Uh, Ford touted it as a way to increase productivity by giving people on the assembly line one week's salary while only requiring them to work eight-hour shifts Monday through Friday. Uh, this is a quote. Uh, Just as the eight-hour day opened our way to prosperity, so the five-day work week will open our way to still greater uh, prosperity. Ford famously mused, said his strategy was to give workers an extra day of recreation, which would create the need to purchase more goods, including his vehicles. So as a result, in 1940, the 40-hour work week was mandated nationally across the U.S., along with the two-day weekend, and Canada and other countries uh, soon follow suit. So, uh, very much like the Industrial Revolution and what was going on at the turn of the last century, how can we possibly come out of this the same way when we've seen how technology has forced us into the changes that we have? Let's bring in uh, Linda Nazareth, McDonald-Laurie Institute, Senior Fellow for Economics and Population Change, Principal of Relentless Economics and host of the Work and the Future podcast and is with us now. Linda, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: I am. Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: So lots of chatter and experimentation going on with a four-day work week. Is this just as instrumental as what Henry Ford was doing way back in the 20s?
3: You know, it could be. It's interesting, you know, you put that in the historical context. A lot of the policies we have right now really may not be the right thing for 2021. I mean, we look at the social policies. They were put in after the war and they made sense for what we had then. So I think it's a good thing that we're questioning it. Now, do I think we're going to move to a four-day work week anytime soon? I think it's going to be a hard sell.
0: Uh, you bring up an interesting point about how these policies, they're still touted today as groundbreaking, especially in the union movement. But as you mentioned, that was a 100 years ago. So uh, is it time for an update? Is it time to reexamine what the average workday looks like for the average person?
3: Well, first of all, is the average work day really eight hours for the average person? It is for some people if they're paid hourly and if that's what they do. Uh, We know, though, for a lot of people, they're on call all the time. Uh, They don't leave right at five o'clock, no matter what time they started. And there's an expectation that they will always be there if they're needed because it's easy to contact them. And and that seems to be what the economy demands. So you'd have to get rid of that first uh, before you could talk about four days or five days. Now, there are some jobs and some industries where it could work and we know it's already done in, in you know, nursing and other uh, parts of the medical establishment for example there's been some experimentation with it in other industries including I think media at different points but uh, you know will it be widely adopted I'm not sure uh, lots of things to consider.
0: So uh, tech has allowed us to, uh, to do exactly what you just said and, and the pandemic forces into some situations are we going backwards then?
3: Are we going backwards into in the uh, sense
0: that, you know, a 40 hour work week, an eight hour day, Monday to Friday, obviously, unless, as you said, unless you're an hourly employee, that doesn't necessarily jive anymore. So are we losing those privileges that that Henry Ford uh, was so innovative with way back 100 years ago?
3: You know, I find it hard to compare anything with Henry Ford. I mean, he, yeah. there was not the same technology. Uh, there was not a pandemic. Well, there was a pandemic, actually. It was just not treated the same way a hundred years ago. Uh, but you know, he certainly didn't have workers at home on Zoom calls or any kind of teleconferencing. I would really like to hear from workers during this pandemic and see you know, what are the concerns they have. I'm not sure that five days or four days are, are the major thing. Uh, it may be meetings for so many hours are are the biggest priority. It may well be that the hugest thing for anybody is whether they want to be in the office or not in the office and are our minds open enough to allow people to be working virtually, maybe at home, maybe wherever, for the longer term. It's all part of the same thing. And when I say, you know, I don't, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, go ahead, go ahead.
3: No, when I say I'm not sure that managers are uh, okay with the idea of four days because they want everyone there all the time, I, I think it's the same for all these things.
0: So is this less about how many days of the week you're working and more about how that work will be done, in other words, at home? So the discussion, that may have been the discussion back in the 1920s, you know, about how long your work day was, how long your work week was. But in today's uh, in today's society, it's about can I work from home? What are my options? How do I get the work done?
3: Yeah, and are we okay with trusting people to get the work done? And that's a big list. Who supposedly has unlimited vacation for people? They're got all the cutting edge tech. Uh, they actually have a CEO who said he wants everybody back in the office the minute they get jabbed. Now, maybe he's rethinking that, uh, but you know, he certainly said it really wasn't that workable having people not on site. So, you know, you have. Uh, a lot of attitudes to change first. In the banking industry, most of the major Wall Street banks wanted people back. They said, let this yeah. doesn't work for us. So there's a lot of things, mindset changes, before you can say, let's move to four days.
0: So what do you see the future? What will the post-pandemic world be look like? Because is it safe to say it's not going to be the same as it was when we went in?
3: I see a lot of changes, Scott. Uh, I see automation being gigantic. So for those work functions that can be automated, we'll see that. And those would probably be in the hourly paid uh, part of the economy first. I mean, it will be everything financed, everything else. But certainly in say fast food, in restaurants, in retail, in parts of manufacturing, you're gonna see a lot more, manufa- uh, lot more automation. It will put some jobs at risk and that will take bargaining power down somewhat. So I'm not sure uh, what the outcomes will be there. Um, I do think the next thing will be to flexibility because there will be uh, labor shortages, skill shortages, talent shortages for some jobs. So you'll see companies being more open about perhaps recruiting from anywhere and not having people on site. And yes, you will have some people who will be able to negotiate four days or five days. Now, having said that, it's not that I'm closing down the idea of the 4-day yeah. week. I think you'll see it in, you'll see some a lot of experimentation in a lot of different industries and we'll see you know how this one works it is a lot of hours to ask people to be productive and i know there have been some studies that suggest it can work very well Uh, but uh and new zealand experimenting it right now iceland um but i do think i'm a little bit cautious about that and if i'm cautious i'm sure companies will be cautious too
0: will employees want to come back after this the, those that have you know, the 30 percent or so that have had the option and to do this. And, you know, let's be honest, it's a blessing in disguise. But it, will will um, will, there, will the workers want to come back, you know, especially when some people are vaccinated, some people aren't vaccinated. I mean, there's so many different issues that come into play here.
3: Yeah, and, and we're starting to see this that's a lot of people. The people who don't want to be back in the office four days or five days really, really don't want to come back. And the studies, the you know, surveys we've seen have suggested they would take pay cuts. They would do anything yeah. to not have to be back. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure uh, how the four days would be um, accepted. I think another thing to consider here, too, is the environmental part of this. Having people commute five days is not great for the environment. Having them commute four days is somewhat better. Having them do less work at home more would be somewhat better. And that's gonna be a variable too. Over the next few years, climate change and how it uh, really factors into different jobs in different industries is gonna be a consideration. So that's maybe something people who want the four days could bargain with.
0: It's interesting you should say that because we all remember during the early stages of this pandemic, you could like literally shoot a cannon down a highway uh, at times. And, and we, we certainly know how that, uh, you know, ease traffic, uh, whether that's a, a solution that can that can be there moving forward. Uh, I'm not sure. What about we've heard lots about this going to be a mass exodus of employees like people are, you know, they're in jobs. They've decided they they, they might want to change. They might want to upgrade. They might want to go back and get more education, do this, do that and, and such uh, do you think there's going to be an employee shift here that uh, there'll be lots of movement in the next year or so?
3: I do, we're starting to see that in the US. We saw tons of quits. Uh, Canada doesn't measure the data in quite the same way, but I don't think we're seeing the job market churn quite yet, Canadians maybe are a little bit more cautious about that, but that's a good thing. That shows economic strength, and it shows worker bar- bargaining power. Again, I would be cautious as to how long it lasts. Uh, you need the economy continuing to do well, and you need workers to have a lot of power on their side to do that. We do know, though, that this is maybe a bit of an aside, that workers who are willing to change jobs over the course of their career Career, end up making more. Uh, You know, people who stay uh, in jobs long term, on average, make less. Uh, So we'll see if people kind of adopt that behavior to give themselves a raise.
0: Many have said that uh, the technology that we're using has been around for an awfully long time. But, of course, we we don't want to change if we don't have to. Uh, A pandemic has has literally rocked the whole world. Uh, Do you think some of these changes will stick, Um, whether it's the hospitality industry, whether it's uh, other businesses? businesses or such. How do you think this has changed our psyche and the way we look at business?
3: You know, it really depends how well businesses have implemented any of this. I mean, take the example of schools. It should be fine to watch your lectures from home uh, and you're still absorbing the same knowledge, and yet it's getting such horrible reviews. People hate this, it's it's been a failed experiment because it really wasn't done well. Uh, It was done without a lot of planning. It was just sort of, let's just get this done. And in the workplace, it's a bit similar. Uh, I I think now we're kind of in the sober second thought and the plans are being made to do this on a longer term basis, but there was a lot of just getting it done at the beginning and I don't think it always worked. So it'll be like years of looking at these experiments and seeing what worked and what didn't work and kind of putting in place some of it.
0: How, what about the attitude of the employee moving forward? For a lot of us, staying at home has made us readjust our priorities. You know, do we want this in our life? Do we want that in our life? Do we, in, in more of other things? Um, will this keep us as competitive? Will this, um, or even for, I've got a, a house of, of teenagers here, uh, they're, they sort of have a different attitude, it appears, than what millennials have. And they're kind of chomping at the bit. Is there opportunity? How much opportunity is there coming out the end of this? Because it's usually situations like this where, where, where things will fall by the wayside, but it's also a tremendous time for growth.
3: Oh, I'm optimistic about the economy, short term and long term. I think as we come out of this, and I was hoping it would be really soon, but maybe it'll be a bit longer. We would we're going to see a boom. Uh, I think longer term, we have industries that are absolutely expanding. Canada can be more competitive. Uh, people with the right skills, very specialized skills, skills that take a while to acquire, can do extremely well. You mentioned though that uh, Gen Z is different than millennials and others. Yeah. You know what? What isn't going to change, Scott? It's the uh, the fact that the banks want to get paid for mortgages and loans <laughs> yeah. and everything else okay yeah. so i don't think there's anything getting around any way getting around that i think eventually everybody comes up against that and unless you don't want a car or a place to live or the ability to travel or whatever else you end up making some choices
0: what advice do you have for young people right now who, again, I think we're going to look back at this for years and years to come, and and this will fit in there with the Industrial Revolution and, and, and other monumental shifts in society. What advice do you have for young people that are, um, say, on the cusp of this?
3: Well, I'd say they have to be flexible, willing to retrain, willing to rethink. But they're learning that right now. I mean, they have had to pivot in a way that we didn't have to pivot at that age. Uh, And Mm. they're going to realize that, you know, shocks can happen and these black swan events happen and you have to just kind of roll with it. So I think they're going to be okay.
0: Do you think we have finished feeling the effects of this global pandemic or will we feel this and see these trends changing for, for years, time, months to come?
3: Well, I think it's obviously going to take some time to come out of this. It's going to take time to vaccinate the world and all the rest of it. So, unfortunately, it won't be just a matter of weeks. Uh, But, you know, a lot of things have changed. We are probably going to see a reshuffling of global power somewhat. Some of the countries that were doing well Uh, getting hit very hard by this. So there's that part of it. I think we're gonna see inequality go up because of this. Some people were much more vulnerable than others. So, and then we're also gonna see government deficits in Canada and everywhere uh, just balloon. And at some point those have to be paid back and we'll have to make choices around that. So unfortunately this isn't something we're gonna just walk away from and forget. Uh, We're gonna be dealing with the effects a long time.
0: Linda Nazareth with us, uh, McDonald laurie Institute Senior Fellow for Economics and Population Change principal of Relentless Economics and host of the Work the Future podcast. Linda, thanks so much for the time and insight. Fascinating time we live in. and uh, Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, the Tokyo Olympics just winding up and uh, the success of them or lack thereof, depending on which way you want to look at it. And uh, now... As uh, the Tokyo Olympics come to an end, six months from now, just under six months from now, uh, the focus will turn to Beijing, China and the Winter Olympics. There's a new poll out that said the majority of Canadians support or somewhat support a boycott of the Beijing Olympics due to the situation regarding the two Michaels and, obviously, the security of uh, staff and uh, Olympians moving forward. Let's bring in Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Good to speak with you,
0: Scott. Are you surprised at the feeling of Canadians in regard to boycotting the Olympics as a result of the two Michaels?
4: Uh, no, I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, really, the the uh, support for Canada's engagement with China, uh, according to public opinion polls, is now down to about 18 or 15 percent of the population. So, most Canadians uh, have got the number of that regime, and they don't want us to be associated with it. And you know, it's very hard to to participate in an Olympics without celebrating the country where the olympics is being held and so you know the question is really what to do um, the, the athletes have been preparing and it's their moment for a lot of them it's the only time for them to participate uh, in an olympics but um... you know china is holding the michael's it's probably not safe for athletes to go there if they intend to say anything political and then we have the issue of that regime being complicit in genocide against the Turkic Muslims in uh, in the Chinese uh, Uyghur region. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why we don't want to be in a position where we're saying to that regime, well, you know, uh, despite what you're doing, uh, we're still going to engage with you in a in a normal, friendly way. So there are a couple of possibilities. I mean, the government would probably engage in a diplomatic boycott at the Olympics. In other words, no senior Canadian officials would go. But um, it looks like the Chinese, even though it's in February, may restrict who's able to enter China anyway and, and not allow spectators and and uh, government officials to attend. But just the athletes, after they have had Chinese vaccine injected into their veins and three weeks of quarantine, so the diplomatic boycott really wouldn't have a lot of meaning. The other option, which is being broached, is to delay it a year and then spread the events around the world so the athletes will still have a chance to to um, compete, but we wouldn't be in a situation where they may be compromised by um, the politics of the Chinese regime. So that's more or less, it seems, where it stands right now. It's not looking at all good. And, of course, in the Olympics, where a significant number of countries don't participate, is uh you know not much of a games because uh you know you don't get to compete against the best right
0: would that be china's out if all of a sudden you did see countries pulling out will they all of a sudden say you know what we don't want anybody here anyway because of uh of a uprising or a fourth wave of covid whatever you want to call it
4: i mean it might be i mean if it really gets quite bad and and it looks like the olympics will be basically just gutted by uh, political repugnance over the Chinese regime, they might do that. And there's also, you know, let's bear in mind that these Chinese vaccines developed so far are not that effective against COVID as, as the vaccines that have been approved for use in Canada. You know, none of the Chinese vaccines have been approved for use in our country because they're they're just not that effective. They may produce an mRNA vaccine soon. They're talking, you know, there's rumors that China is trying to develop uh, superior vaccines. But the Delta variant uh, has come to China. And if people who are fully vaccinated are still getting sick, you know, it might provide protection of 60 percent, but not of 40 percent. Then, in fact, you might have a serious COVID situation in China by next February. And, and, uh, you know, that would mean everything would be off.
0: Uh, does uh, does this poll or this polling change Canadian government's opinion on this? I mean, obviously, you stated earlier th- that Canadians don't have a good feeling about China anyway. Those polls have been out for a while. Uh, but the fact that this one's coming out saying, you know what, uh, we're not even sure they should be going to these games, does that resonate with the government?
4: I don't think so. Not with our current government, who have continued to engage with China as normal Despite the uh, hostage diplomacy against Cobri and savevor that you alluded to and a huge number of of uh, Chinese violations of the norms of trade and diplomacy, um, you know it seems that our current government feels that the promotion of Canadian prosperity through enhancing trade and investment with China trumps everything else and I you know and and I think judging by their past performance. The government would not want to get into a situation where we face serious Chinese economic retaliation if Canada takes the lead in saying, um, you know, we just can't do Olympics with you because you're holding Kovrigan's favour and because of all of the other things that that your awful regime has been doing domestically and internationally. So if there is a change of government in the next election, that might be quite a different story. I think the Conservative Party, if I if I've got this correct, is on record as supporting a boycott
0: yeah i see that as well um you talked about vaccines earlier charles what would be the vaccine protocol for canadian athletes going there i'm you know i'm assuming they would all be vaccinated here is that acceptable to the chinese government because these are vaccines they don't have you said about vaccinating their own people i mean are canadians or uh, a part of the movement have to receive a chinese vaccine do you think
4: that's what they're talking about and and certainly on the chinese embassy's website You know, for the limited number of people who are allowed into China for, you know, emergency business uh, purposes, um, they're requiring Chinese vaccines. So, you know, you'd have to have another injection of a Chinese vaccine, even if you're fully vaccinated with uh, Pfizer or Moderna.
0: Charles, I could see that completely changing this discussion. I mean, having the athletes there is one thing, uh, but then saying you have to inject yourself with uh the Chinese Communist Party's vaccine, which obviously isn't uh, up to snuff with the other world vaccines i mean i I think that could be a game changer, no pun intended,
4: yeah I think for a lot of athletes, they would be skeptical of using Chinese vaccines because of course, like everything else, you know the Chinese are not trustworthy and you can't tell no what what's going on with that that vaccine is it safe, would it affect uh Uh, women who who intend to have children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, So from that point of view, there could be a number of athletes who would make a personal decision that I just can't go to China under those conditions.
0: Here we are six months out, and nobody's really talking about this except people like you and I or the occasional polling from people like Nano. So uh, at what point does this become an issue after they're already loaded up and on the plane? Like at what point do we say, you know what, look what's coming ahead. we got to do something here.
4: Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, we've been proposing a lot of options and certainly the option of, of postponing the games and, and holding you know it's somewhere else, probably in several countries is um the most viable in terms of defending our our, our political interests and not you know emboldening the Chinese to feel that they can engage in kid, in in um, uh, hostage diplomacy and they can engage in genocide and Canada will just let it go um but uh you know there's no movement in this direction, and of course the international Olympic Committee. Is so um, involved in in the profits of Olympics. Um, you know, even within the the membership of the Olympic Committee, there seem to be a huge number of benefits uh, that they demand from the countries that host the Olympics, advertisers, and so on. Yeah. That um, you know, it's very hard for us, for Canada, short of telling athletes that uh, you know no Canadian citizen is allowed to travel to China at this time, to put a stop to it. And so. You know, it looks to me like a train wreck where, it you know, the Games may be held in Beijing, but they won't really be uh, much of an Olympics if a lot of the leading athletes of the world, including athletes of entire countries like the United States, don't show.
0: So how, uh, obviously, Canada has a vested interest here. Canadians don't want athletes there because of, of various, you know, you said the Uyghurs and, and obviously the two Michaels. What about other countries? Where's the U.S. on all of this?
4: U.S. is uh, is moving towards boycott. There's certainly a consensus in in Congress over that. And you know the other thing about this Olympics, it's being held in Beijing. You know, Beijing often doesn't have snow in the winter. I live yeah. there. You know, as a diplomat, and it's very dry. Uh, and so it's a crazy place to hold a Winter Olympics because you can't be assured that there's going to be white stuff on the ground. You know, it's too bad it didn't go to Oslo, but you know, the the uh, parliament of that country just uh, wouldn't provide the funding because these things are expensive and lose money. Yeah. So I don't know what the future is, but I'm inclined to think that you know, probably spreading the, the events across many countries that have the facilities is maybe the only answer to keep it going. I mean, the other How alternative can... was Almaty in Kazakhstan, which you know would have been quite a problematic venue to hold a major international event
0: how concerned is china that there might be a boycott i mean what are they feeling right now how are they feeling now
4: well they're certainly pushing um every country of the world to not do this you know threatening retaliation um rallying all of their allies of course you know a lot of their allies are not in winter sports countries you know most of the most of the northern countries tend to be liberal democracies with the exception of russia and so um you know, if they can get lots of support from from South South American and African countries, but they're not, you know, they don't have bobsled teams really. So uh, from that point of view, I, I really don't know how this is going to pan out. But, y- you know, if the Olympics is um, not held in Beijing and it's not a success, it's going to cause a lot of resentment, um, you know, both by the regime and I think by by people in China who identify with this, that regime who feel that the West is just out to get China and and uh, and spoil its its moment to shine as as a the, you know as a country a great great power in the world that that's coming into its own by, by holding an Olympics you know similar to what we've seen with Tokyo in '64 or Seoul in '88. So I, I think that this could really be the beginning of the of the next Cold War if we have a situation where you, you know we've decided that we're going to shun China over this athletics event and the chinese take it very badly you know it's just it's just one more thing in a cascading decline of relations between china and the west but a very significant symbolic one i think so
0: who will go first to initiate a boycott would that be the united states will canada go first considering the two michaels
4: i think it'll probably be the states uh, who will take the lead because our government just doesn't seem to be you know a leading a leading nation in 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 maintaining the rules-based international order, I, I should think that the U.S. is probably working with like-minded allies in the Quad and in NATO to try and come up with a coordinated um, uh, boycott, if that's the direction that they go. And I, I, I really just can't see um, the United States um, participating in the Olympics in China, considering how you know bad the relations are between. U.S. and China and, and getting worse, and also because of the possibility that some athletes will take it upon themselves to say, well, I'm in China and I must speak out against um, you know, the genocide of, of, of Muslims, say, and uh, and could find themselves in the same person as Kovrigan's favorite. You know, you cannot rule that out as a possibility
0: uh the canadian olympic committee ceo said that earlier this year that a boycott's the wrong approach saying sport has a unique ability to bring the world together to create dialogue and build understanding um your thoughts
4: uh, i don't think that there's a lot of dialogue that we can have with china on these issues you know chinese government um, simply are not amenable to any compromise on things like genocide or on in favor you know we're heading up to a thousand days uh, in September for mm. Colverick and Sabre being held in, in hell. And I think what the Chinese mostly want is a dialogue where we say, oh, we'll set aside our differences and just work on, on trade relations. So, you know, don't give us a hard time over our menacing of people in Canada who are dissident against the regime or Uyghurs and Tibetans here or, or our a cyber espionage or, you know, our, our influence activities or, our international activities um expanding into the south china sea our threats against taiwan you know just are 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 uh... are violating the terms of of the uh, takeover of hong kong you know that we're expected to just tolerate that and then uh... participate happily in events like the olympics and and uh... welcome chinese state investment in our country you know it's just not uh, their idea of a dialogue really is about us simply making compromises and concessions to China's overall agenda to to become a dominant um, power in the world economically and politically, which is very much against Canada's national interests and our sovereignty and security.
0: Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute, talking about after the Tokyo Olympics, the Summer Olympics ending, uh, focus on the Beijing coming up in, uh, less than six months in China and how the world is responding Uh, to that invitation and whether they will boycott uh, the Beijing Olympics, as right now a lot of Canadians support, or at least somewhat support, a boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Charles, thanks for the time. Be well.
4: Great to speak with you. Take care.